Welcome to Success the Last, a podcast that honestly explores the complicated topic of success. I'm your host, Jared Siegel. I'm a partner at DeLap and leader of our wealth advisory practice. During each episode, we're going to talk to a business owner, entrepreneur, real estate investor, or industry thought leader about their own experiences, insights, and observations as it pertains to life, business, finances, and ultimately fulfillment. Candidly, it can be lonely at the top. Our desire is to use this podcast to connect you with the ideas and resources so you can be better equipped to make more predictable, profitable, and rewarding decisions as you juggle the competing priorities of life, business, and money. Keep in mind, this is a podcast. It's not meant to be a replacement for your CPA or financial advisor, so be sure to check with the appropriate professionals before implementing any of the ideas. If you were responsible for running five different businesses, how would you effectively manage your time? How would you quickly diagnose what was right, wrong, and missing within each of those business units? In the midst of your professional challenges and opportunity, how would you still continue to prioritize your family? And how would you successfully pass along those mission-critical values to your children? In today's conversation with Paul Schlumberger, we're going to unpack each of those questions. More specifically, We're going to jump into the mental model that Paul has used to both diagnose and overcome fear in his life. We'll discuss some of the strategies that he's used when interviewing for character to build better, stronger, more cohesive teams. We'll discuss dashboarding and how Paul's used key performance indicators to center his entire team's attention around the most important parts of the business. We'll wrap up the conversation talking about how Paul has worked so hard with his wife to pass along and prioritize specific values to his children. Though he's accomplished a ton professionally, it has not come at the expense of his family. So we'll talk about how Paul's successfully juggled both the professional and personal demands of life. So without further ado, let's jump into today's conversation with Paul Schlumberger. Paul Schlumberger, we're live. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Jared. It's great to be here on a live podcast which is not live, which you've assured me is not live. So that I way, make a mistake. We'll clean it up. I got your back on that. Perfect. All right. Hey, so when I first jumped into this whole podcasting thing, it actually stimulated a little bit of fear. And it reminded me of a conversation that I had had with you. You talked to me about really, there's only five masks, five faces, so to speak, of fear. And I thought it was really profound. So and let's just start there. What would be the five fears that you think most things fall into? Yeah, so that's kind of an interesting question, Jared. I have an acronym that I use for that. It's called Surf T. Surfing's a great sport and it's a good way to remember things. So really whenever, you know, I'm experiencing fear myself or I've got an employee that might have fear about something, I kinda try to unpack it and what I believe that the five sources of fear The first one being success, being fearful of something actually being better than you thought. People sometimes won't make change because they're actually afraid they'll succeed. The other one that's very common is the fear of the unknown. And this is often the root of people wanting to change because they're going into something unknown. So that the fear of the unknown. The third one is rejection. So if you've ever been to an eighth grade dance, we all probably have dealt with the fear of rejection. I would say that's my weakness. I specialize in rejection. (laughs) 
there's some type of rejection I'm fine with. There's other types of rejection that I know I'm very sensitive to. The other one is failure, the fear of failure. That's not a major problem for me. To me, if I'm not failing, I'm not trying hard enough, but I'm not stepping out far enough. And the last one is time. As we age, there's a fear of time and how fast things are moving. And so that's kind of how I categorize fear when it pops up. Excellent. So I'm fortunate enough to know you, but most of our listeners won't. So you grew up in Southern Oregon, went to Oregon State, studied and got your degree in engineering, went on to get an MBA in international business. And we were talking right before we went live on the show. How many businesses are you leading right now? Yeah, technically five different businesses. And they're all somewhat, you've kind of laughed a little bit. They're somewhat related, but maybe they're not. But yeah, I enjoy businesses. I enjoy the challenge. And I would say the last five years have been a bit organic in regards to the opportunities that have been presented. So, Which businesses of the five, maybe just summarize a couple of them, which ones are kind of taking the most of your focus these days? And what do you fill your day with? So one of the major businesses is a distribution company for fire equipment. So we have basically the seven Western states. And so what that means is we get the opportunity to sell fire apparatus. Most people would call those fire trucks, big red fire trucks. I would say that's what takes up the bulk of my time currently. The other businesses are somewhat related. So we have a startup business that develops specialized software for the fire services. And that really stemmed out of a need and talking to a customer. The other one that we're literally just getting off of the ground is a business that decontaminates the turnout gear for firefighters. So one of the leading causes of death of firefighters is cancer, and that's caused by the carcinogens that are in their turnout gear. And we were exposed about a year ago to some technology out of Europe and were extremely impressed with the amount of carcinogens that it could remove. We're very passionate about firefighter safety and how we can make an impact in that industry. And this is right in line with that goal. And so it's very new. We literally just last week received our first PO for $810. We're pretty proud of that to clean some turnout gear in Egan, Minnesota. So the first facility is located in Minnesota and that's where we clean the first turnout gear. So that's awesome. So it went from an idea to real revenue. Correct. That's awesome. $810. You got to start somewhere. You know, yeah. maybe take a dollar and take the 10 and now you put it in a frame. <laughs> well, we actually put the company logo on a dollar and presented that in front of our whole team that's kind of working on that startup and trying to celebrate that. It's always taking a startup from zero to $1 is a huge step. And, you know, the next step is a getting to a million dollars and then to 10, you know, I've always kind of seen those steps in business and literally getting your first dollar is an accomplishment. So. Well, congratulations to you and the team. Yeah. Thanks. 
So I've got a couple of thoughts here, so I'll, I'll jot them down and hopefully I don't lose them. But let's go down this talk track for a second. What I just heard you say is one of the startups stemmed from a conversation with a client, and then another one stemmed from observing a technology likely not being used the way that you're using it and applying it to your current client base to some extent. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess for me, I've identified that entrepreneurship is sometimes different than intrapreneurship. You know, starting from scratch as a standalone entity is different than trying to innovate within an existing entity. I'm kind of, I'm thinking of some of Clayton Christensen's material around the innovator's dilemma, that often the status quo, kind of the mothership has a tendency to smother the innovation. And so I think a lot of organizations right now are really struggling to try to create new markets, create new revenues, and essentially innovate from an existing business model. And so you've had some successes with that. So I guess it's not easy. I guess talk to me about kind of culturally what you need to do or what from a leadership perspective you found successful innovating from an existing business model because that distribution business that you're leading right now is it's old, right? I mean, it's a 100-year-old company, 80-year-old company, something like that. Yeah, you know, I think it starts with kind of first the people, the people that you surround yourself with. There are people that are dreamers, right? And you can have a 100-year-old business, but, you know, you could have a 70-year-old that likes to dream and comes up with constant ideas. At the same time, you could have a 25-year-old that is already stuck in their ways. So like having people that like to dream and can dream, I think is really important. And at least to me, innovation, it always starts with a dream, whether that's a ground up startup or something inside of an existing company. It literally just starts with a dream. It starts with trying to picture something in your head and at least in my mind, that's how it starts. And it often starts, at least in my mind, with kind of a curiosity of, gosh, I wonder if somebody could solve that. Why are they doing that? That doesn't make any sense. And envisioning something that could make sense. Well, so presumably there's that old maxim, dream big, act small. How does the dream get out of your head and into your teammates? How do you share the vision so that they catch it? <laughs> yeah, usually it's pretty ugly. And I say that because it usually, for me, it starts with a, a sketch. You know, I'm a big whiteboard guy. I love whiteboards, have them all over. And I usually start with literally trying to create a visual of what's going on in my head. And it could be a business concept. I'm going to show you here since we're virtual. I'm going to walk you over to my uh, whiteboard. And when we first got on the call, I was telling you about a recent deal that we're working on. And it was one of the partners that sent us through something like a 10-page document that was way too complicated. And after an hour on the phone, I created that picture that I just showed you, sent it to those that were involved and said, hey, this is ultimately what we want to get to. This is the vision of what the deal is going to look like. I mean, it's simple. And so sometimes you got to take something that could be a jumbled mess. And if you're going to explain it to people, you got to simplify it in a manner that they really understand. Yeah. The old adage, a picture's worth a thousand words. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. So I guess you spent the first part of your career 
and more kind of probably traditional existing manufacturing industries. And more recently, over the last five years, you've jumped into what most would kind of consider more traditional startups. So I guess talk to me about what you learned about yourself and the differences between maintaining a business and originating a business. It's easier to maintain one than it is to build one from scratch. <laughs> <laughs> Inertia, right? I guess an yeah. object in motion stays in motion. So yeah. get back to your old high school physics class. Yeah. I've had a very fortunate career and I ran three manufacturing companies. Each one of them I look back on with fond memories, got to work with a lot of great people, had a lot of fun. It was a lot of hard work in different areas, but I had very fond memories. And what I had always, <laughs> funny, I used to watch Shark Tank and think, man, I really want to do that. And then here I am five years after that, and I don't watch Shark Tank anymore, and I'm not sure I want to do any more startups. <laughs> so they're hard to do. And they take a lot of focus and a lot of effort and a lot of it. It's like trying to start a campfire with two sticks, right? You can sit there and rub and rub and rub and rub and rub and rub together for a long, long time and never get a spark. And that's hard. And I have a whole new respect for those that have started businesses from scratch because it's a lot of hard work and it takes a lot of focus. I concur. My one effort at a startup resulted in a big old belly flop. Learned a lot. But to your point, you know, the other experience I had was you, know, you step out to go kind of be your own boss and be on your own. That independence and autonomy seems attractive, but you realize that you have really limited teammates that are there to help you. So then you end up kind of mired in your weaknesses. You're stuck in your weaknesses more than you would be on a team. And so that's, I guess, one of the things I appreciate today more than ever is building a team and having people around you so that you can delegate those things to the people that are actually good at them. Yeah, no, and that's exactly it. I mean, I love working with people. I love being around people. And that was, I think, one of the hardest things for me is going from being around a lot of people and being able to identify their strengths, knowing my own weaknesses, and being able to place people in their strengths. And, you know, the sum of the parts was much greater than everybody's individual contribution. And I get a lot of fulfillment out of seeing something come together. That's probably one of the most enjoyable things that I think I can do. And I can do that in a lot of different environments, but I love kind of pulling people together and seeing something come to life. So It's easy to jump into maybe strategies and tactics, but I guess let's talk about what you've learned over the years leading teams and jumping in and creating culture change. As you think about the experiences you've had as a leader, in terms of building culture, what does culture mean to you? And I guess as a leader, how do you shape it? What's worked for you? You know, I think the first thing is the people that you bring into your culture. Sometimes you can choose your team in the beginning. Sometimes you can't. But over time, you surely have the ability to bring in the right character traits. And so I'm extremely involved with the final selection of anybody that we bring in. I typically now will interview for character. We have great people that understand different aspects of for hiring engineers. You have other engineers that can interview them for technical capabilities. If we're hiring mechanics, we've got expert mechanics that can interview for technical abilities. I interview for character, and that's 
I think getting the right people, having the right attitude is fundamental to creating your culture. So that's something that I would focus on. So how would I do that? If I'm trying to interview for character, what would be the questions I might ask or the things that I'm really kind of trying to cue in on? There's probably other techniques. There's some basic questions that I always ask. One of them is I always ask somebody, regardless of what position, I try to get a sense if if they have kids or what their family situation is, because that kind of guides this question. If they have children, then I'll ask them pretty specifically, what are the three character traits that you think are important to hand down to your children? And if they don't have children, then I'll say, well, if you had kids or if you have a niece, what are the character traits that you think you should impart to them? And it's always interesting kind of the responses that I get, but I'm looking for a little insight into their soul. The other character trait that I'm looking for in an interview also is the victim mentality. If I have any sense that they have that character trait, it's not going to be a good fit. I guess those are two ways I would evaluate somebody for their character. And at the same time, if you go into a culture that's pre-existing, you can use those same questions to understand your management team, kind of see if they have what their character traits are. And you might have somebody on the team that just isn't going to fit. And then you have to kind of work through that. So the other thing I wanted you to talk about was when you started your role with the distribution company, there's also a service component as well. And so as the president, you spent your first couple of days on site in the shop. Is that correct? With the service team? Yeah. Yeah. And then I went to one of the other facilities and spent a week up there in the shop. It used to be, there's another TV show, right? Where they- Undercover Boss? Undercover Boss. Yeah. Yeah. It's not Undercover Boss. I learned, why do I do it? Well, actually, I know why I do it. There's two main reasons. Number one is, When you go to what some people refer to as like the end of the business, you know, not the office, but kind of the end, that the part where your company ships something to the customer and you're going to learn a lot. You're going to learn everything that's wrong in that business. You're going to learn there because that's where it's going to show. Most issues in a business that are going wrong don't happen with the individual that's doing the final assembly or that's doing the mechanic work. Nine times out of 10, that's not where the issues are. Most of the issues are going to happen upstream. If you've done a decent job hiring, I believe people are good and they want to do the best they can, but if they don't have the right information or the right tools or the right environment to be successful, they won't. And all those things happen in the office, not on the shop floor. And so I go to the shop floor to understand how well the office is doing. I also do it because I want to have open communication with every function within a business. And oftentimes there's these barriers, especially in manufacturing, between the folks that are in the office and the folks that are doing the physical labor. And it's even worse. I've seen it really bad in environments with engineers where the engineers never go out onto the floor to see what's actually going on. And I don't believe in that. I believe 
very strongly that everybody has something different to offer and we all have something to learn from each other. And my goal is to set that tone immediately whenever I go into a new organization. I like it. That's why it stuck with me. And I remember that you did it and wanted you to talk about it. So presumably then one of the reasons that you're doing it is to discover what's right, what's wrong, what's missing, what might be confused within your team. And presumably at that point, you're going to figure out what are the kind of the key performance indicators or the key result areas that are most meaningful for various different teams. I don't know if I've ever told you this, but I've seen a lot of operational dashboards in my day. Clients have shared a lot of different ways of kind of how they keep a pulse on the business. But you've shared a couple of dashboards with me that I thought were special. So uh, well done. But I guess as you kind of think through how you gather that information and keep it in front of you, talk to me about how you think about KRAs or KPIs, whatever the acronym is, and kind of how you pull together the dashboard that's going to kind of help you keep the business well calibrated. Sure. I mean, and you know this, I'm a huge dashboard fan. I would say the more experience I get in business, the faster I'm able to get one in place, especially in certain types of business. I know exactly what the metrics should be. And then it's just a matter of how quickly can I get the data. I probably have a different approach. Maybe I do, maybe I don't than other people. But, you know, typically it kind of goes back to our earlier discussion about innovation. I'll go into a new business and I'll say, okay, let's define success. What is a great week look like? What does a great month look like? What does a great year look like? And kind of get them to start defining what success looks like to them. Is it a subjective definition of success or is it objective? Is it quantifiable? Kind of how do you allow them to talk about it? In the beginning, I just let them free float. Once again, we usually get a whiteboard out and let them free float. But I know where I ultimately want to steer the discussion is I'm going to want to get to something quantifiable and then figure out how to get visibility into what's quantifiable. But it really starts with letting them dream and dream what it could look like. Everybody knows what a sales funnel is. That's probably one of the easiest things to get your arms around. When you start looking at, let's say, a service organization, you have to figure out, well, what's really important? Customer service is really important. Oh, okay, great. Well, how do you define customer service success? Well, you know, that's when customer calls and we take care of their problem quickly. Well, great. You know, how do you have visibility into that? Well, I don't know. Well, what do you do when a customer calls? Well, we open up a work order. Great. When do you close the work order? Well, when you're done. Okay, well, how quickly does that happen? And so you start with something that's subjective. We want to make customers happy and respond quickly. But you dig and dig and dig until you figure out what are the actions and are there any things quantifiable around that action? And if you find something that's quantifiable, then you can measure it and you can put it on the dashboard. And most importantly, you then share that dashboard with everybody in the company. Like this isn't like some whatever hierarchical management secret dashboard that I get every morning. You share it with the entire company and you teach them how they can affect their aspect of it. And man, people rise to the occasion. And the visibility, people want to succeed and you give them visibility and define what success is. And man, they rise to the occasion. I would say it's, you know, probably 99.9% .9 of the time, 
seen people want to rise to the occasion. You just got to help them define what success is and give them visibility to it. No rise. Intangible and objective ways. Yes. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Paul, have you found there to be a difference between leading indicators versus lagging indicators? What's the ratio? And I guess, can you give us a couple of examples? You said there's a couple of specific industries where you kind of have it really dialed. They probably all serve a purpose, but do you have any kind of favorite leading indicators that maybe people would be surprised that you find value and insight in? Yeah. So traditionally, you know, you run a business off of lagging indicators, right? You look at the financial statement at the end of the month and that's the traditional one. I use that because it's like looking at old news. You want to, shouldn't run a business without understanding financial statements. I definitely use financial statements, but definitely I do drive towards leading indicators. And if you look at a sales organization, the leading indicators, it can be anything from how many leads are coming in, right? You could look at the bottom of your sales funnel and say, well, hey, last week we sold 300,000 bucks worth of whatever part. That's great, but that's old news. How many new inquiries did you get? How many leads are you getting coming into your sales funnel? And ahead of that, how many new customer contacts are you making? So understanding the top of your funnel in a sales organization to me is fundamental and more important than watching the bottom of the funnel. And no disrespect to your profession, but any accountant can watch the bottom of the funnel, right? (laughs) That's part of it for sure. (laughs) But yeah, to better understand the story that your business is telling you in the numbers and how do you pull the different levers to get different outcomes. So you're running five different businesses. There's a lot of innovation. There's a lot of growth. It's across a wide geography. So you're both intentional and organized. So you've indicated, you've hinted at some of your intentionality. I want you to maybe talk about how do you kind of stay organized? There's a lot of things that are competing for your time and your attention. How do you think about the allocation of this finite resource of time? Yeah, it is a finite element, but we can control a lot of the things that we choose to do and more importantly, the things that we choose not to do. I am very deliberate about how I spend my time and I'm very deliberate about what I choose to do and choose not to do. And, you know, both professionally and personally, I am very deliberate about having kind of a five-year plan, both personally and professionally with the business. And then breaking that up into quarters and what are the actions and what are the next steps for that quarter? Once again, both professionally and personally. And then I set up both professionally and personally daily cadences. So, and it might sound rigid, but it probably sounds more rigid than it really is. Within those kind of daily cadence structures, you can get a lot done in a short period of time and you can have open time for things that pop up. That's probably part of the whole method to my madness is any new endeavor, I'll work very hard and very deliberately to get a dashboard in place, visibility into the key things that are going to drive that business, figure out as part of my daily cadence what I'm going to be involved in those metrics or those people, and then let it run and use my time to deal with the things that I couldn't plan for. Because there's always those. Everybody always deals with those. So, 
Yeah, I think what's a common pattern that I've observed is success begets success. And as you climb in your career, more opportunities come your way. Early in your career, you just say yes to almost anything. But as your influence grows, your success grows, more op- the opportunities increase. And so does your talent and your experience. And so there's this interesting thing where you're now overwhelmed with a lot of things that you could do. There's a lot of people that haven't yet clarified, there's a lot that I could do, but what are the few things that I must do? As you kind of think through your day, must, should, could, every yes is indirectly a no. I think people might be surprised. It's not uncommon for people to have a business plan or a marketing plan or a financial plan, but nearly no one that I run into actually has a life plan, like a joy plan, like the things in life that create fulfillment and joy, both experiential joy and reflective joy. You've actually taken the time to outline those and you actually have a dashboard of these are the various categories that create joy and fulfillment in my life and manage it accordingly. Am I correct? Yeah, you're very correct. And even worse, I share it with my wife. <laughs> so we're very deliberate about, we have two great kids and, you know, we're very deliberate about how we choose to spend our time, how we choose to spend our resources and is it in line with kind of the key areas of our life. So yeah, I'm very deliberate about it. I don't know the alternative. I, I shouldn't say that. I, I know the alternative and that's just to kind of float through life. That's not a good fit for me. Maybe for some it is, but I choose to be pretty deliberate about my actions. I guess if any of the listeners have any curiosity, be sure to reach out to our team because we're starting to help clients and facilitate the tools and conversations so that people can put together these personal strategic action plans, you know, so that you can approach your life with the same level of intentionality that you've approached your business. So this wise man once shared a question that he liked to ask his interviewees. What are the two or three values that they would want to pass along to their kids? It was a way to kind of see into their soul and evaluate their character. So I'd like to ask you that question because, again, we're talking about intentionality with not only your marriage, but with your kids. So what are a couple of the values that you and your wife have agreed are kind of core principles that your boys will end up with? So right here, I have... There's your list. It's printed. It's printed. The 17 things to teach our children before leaving home. The first one, and for us, the most important is to love and honor God. That's very important to us. I could go through the other 17 if you're interested, but these are the 17 things that we want to make sure that our kids, we do our best to instill these values in our children before they leave home. Why don't you share just a couple that mean the most to you and maybe kind of in practice how you're attempting to make sure that your kids catch it. And then if you're open to it, can we hyperlink to those in the show notes? Sure. Awesome. Awesome. So I would say, obviously, the first one for is to love and honor God. And we do our best to model as well as we're very deliberate about, let's say, the culture that we present around our children and making sure that we're protecting their eyes and their ears with the age-appropriate thing. And we've been very deliberate about that from the very beginning. You know, I think one of the other, we're big sports fans in regards to, you know, getting our boys involved in sports activities. We believe that A lot of these values can also come from sports in regards to 
One of these is taking care of your body, learning to win and lose gracefully. Those are two things that exposing our children to sports and encouraging them and helping them, regardless of what the sport is, but we believe that's a way to help them to learn those values. I think one of the other ones is money. We're also, once again, very deliberate, have been from the very beginning with how we teach our boys about money, specifically making them manage money from day one and also teaching them that they have to work for money. And it's been interesting. Our boys are 12 and 13 now, probably sometimes think we're the worst parents in the world, but most 13 year olds are convinced that they do have the worst parents. (laughs) Yeah. But make them pay for their own. They had to buy their own cell phones. They have to pay for their own monthly services that they have on their cell phones. We're mentally preparing them to buy their own cars, mentally preparing them to pay for their own education. And we've done that since day one. And one might say, how are they ever going to make enough money to pay for their education? I would say we facilitate ways for them to earn, to work and earn money and also teach them how to earn and make money. Because at the end of the day, when they leave, when they're 18, I want them to stand on their own. And at that point, maybe I'll invest in an idea that they have, (laughs) which would be a lot of fun. But if we just give them something, I'm very concerned about what that's gonna do to them and their self-esteem and their abilities in the future. And so we're probably on the extreme of making them work and pay for their own things. It gets harder. We, Our family likes to travel, and that's one of the things where we choose to spend our money on traveling. And so we take our kids, and we enjoy doing that. 12 and 13 are starting to understand some of the different like values of money and maybe they don't make enough to go on some of these trips or do those types of things. So it's a work in progress, but my wife and I are definitely in alignment on that and are deliberate about it. So one other quick word of advice for anybody with like younger kids, we used to do this with our kids. You're going shopping and you've got your child with you and they're looking at something on the counter and, or whatever. And they say, you know, mom, dad, can I have that? And I think the answer that we always heard was, from other people was like, well, no, or we can't afford that or whatever. We would always say it's not in the budget. And you can put anything into that category, right? Because you make the budget and you can choose whether you put stuff in there or not. But it was a good way for our kids to start thinking that, no, it's not an impossibility. And if they wanted to put it in their own budget, they could put it in their own budget, but it's not in our budget. And we still use that today. And still seems to work. So There's a lot of evidence to support that's the way to think about it. Last week's episode was with Dr. Moira Summers, and she is a wealth psychologist, and she was talking about the power of boundaries, that one of the challenges that more fluent families have is just saying, I can't afford it. You know, that excuse goes away. So it's a much harder conversation that's a values or boundaries conversation, and for the kids to take some ownership of it. Well, I think you're approaching it the right way. I've heard you mention that you talk to your kids about the ways they can spend money or the uses of money. You can spend some, give some, and save some. 
and it's kind of those uses as well as, you know, I've talked about money buys you stuff, experiences, and impact. And so those trips are an opportunity to communicate some of the values that have helped you get to where you are while making some incredible experiences with your family and sharing parts of the world that they otherwise wouldn't see. So I think that's time well spent. Speaking of time, Lao Tzu, he had this quote, time is a created thing. To say I don't have time is to say I don't want to. And so what's fun is right now, if you ask people how they're doing, you'll typically get the good, busy response. And so it's very difficult to find somebody today that's not busy. And so often they're too busy to make time for other things that could be within your own organization or within your social circles. But you and I have traded books extensively over the last couple of years. And so you're an avid consumer of books. I guess talk to me about why you make time to consume books. And then maybe a couple, if you're going to kind of give the listeners, if there was a reading list, the three best books that you would want somebody to consume. Well, first, for the readers, I have to explain to them a running joke between Jared and I, because he would come in and he would tell me, hey, I just read this book. I just read that book. I just read that book. And I was like, are you kidding? Like, how in the world does Jared have the time to read all those books? That's crazy. And then finally, I learned that he wasn't reading him. He was listening to him while he was driving, going to client calls or on airplanes. And I'm like, ah, Jared. And so... That's why I pick my words. Consume. Consume Yeah, consume. There's some reading in there too. But yes, there's some listening. Yeah. So since then, and I do consume books, I think books that I would recommend really depend on the person and what their goals are and what they're working on in their life. And there's one book that I read all the time. I read all the time. I read the Bible. I think there's a lot of, regardless of what you're going through in your life, there's something in there for that, especially in business. But I won't go into that. I think that Stephen Covey, you know, I read this book a long time ago, Stephen Covey's Seven Habits of Highly Successful People. I'm specifically beginning with the end in mind. And I do a lot of that. I begin something with the end in mind. And I think going back to creating a vision in my head, another book that's kind of a dumb book, but it resonated with me was Think and Grow Rich. And it was, I don't even, Jared could probably tell it. You could Google that and see who the author was. Napoleon Hill. Yeah, Napoleon Hill. It's an old book. It was written... I don't know, like in the 30s or 40s or something like that. But it talks about, once again, like creating something, creating a vision in your mind, creating, you know, everybody has that ability, everybody. There's no person that doesn't have the ability to close their eyes and envision something different than what exists. And it could be as simple as, I wish my lawn was cut, right? That's a very basic one. To a complex strategy of how you're going to start up a global business. It's all the same. It's creating a vision for what something would be like, what something could be. And then I'm trying to think of another classic. Those two books, you know, one of the other ones that I read that changed how I think about businesses and kind of where I spend my time and how to generate income There's another old book called Multiple Streams of Income. And 
from the very beginning, I have looked and made that part of my overall, let's say, financial plan and where I spend time and where I invest money. But in investing time and money so that I'm not ultimately trading my time for money, if that makes sense. That's very important. And that principle, I'm very adamant about in business. And the more experience I get in business, the more adamant I am about that. And what that means is, you know, as it relates to a business is you want to set up a business that has a reoccurring revenue stream, you know, where you go in and there's tons of models of reoccurring revenue streams from rental real estate to Microsoft, but that enables you to grow and for that business to thrive. Businesses that don't have reoccurring revenue streams are harder. They're harder to run, they're harder to work, but you have a good reoccurring revenue stream. Whatever that looks like for that business is something that I always look for. So anyway, that's the books. Awesome. Well, I guess the heartbeat of why our firm started this podcast was could be almost summarized by a quote from Charlie Tremendous Jones. He was a gentleman, kind of a motivational speaker in his day. So he's got all sorts of kind of witty, fun quotes. But the quote was, you'll be the same person in five years you are today, except for the people you meet and the books you read. And presumably people are connected to your experiences, right? So you have these experiences that you'll share with people. But I've come to really appreciate the power of a book because in many ways, if you choose the right book, you can gather years, decades worth of experiences synthesized into two or 300 pages that took somebody 30 years worth of lived experiences, good decisions and bad. And that's their best thoughts synthesized into 300 words. And so yeah, there's a lot of emphasis today on efficiency and life hacks. And if ever there was a, like a business hack, the, the gems that you can buy for $19 in two to 300 pages is just truly world-class. So I guess the thought around this is can we curate f- fascinating people? Can we introduce wonderful people and interesting tools and resources to, to positively impact our community? So I guess on that note, Paul, I just really wanted to say thank you for your ideas and your resources and just the stories that you got to tell today. I'm positive our community was impacted. So uh, we'll have to do it again. All right. Sounds good. Well, thank you for your time. This is my first podcast ever, and I guess I enjoyed it. <laughs> Phenomenal. So I'm going to go ahead and recycle the joke that I've used before. It's your best podcast, the best one you've ever done. Yes, it absolutely is. Awesome. Thanks, Paul. All right. Thank you.